It's Daily Thunder, thundering out the truth of Jesus Christ live every morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more about our discipleship programs or to support this podcast, visit ellerslie.com. Now, here's Eric Lee. Let's uh, start this morning. This is uh, just as a uh, help for those of you that are poking your head in. This is a Sunday service uh, here at Ellerslie. Uh, and so it's sort of the Sunday version of the Daily Thunder, uh, and uh, we have sort of a combination of factors today. We have people from our community that are here. We have advanced students here. We have people that were participating in something called the Story Summit uh, over the weekend, uh, and uh, that's something that is hosted by the Christian Worldview Film Festival and the Filmmakers Guild, and for those of us that participated in that this, this weekend, um, you know how you try and figure out ways to say it, especially after we were warned not to use cliche uh, uh, over the weekend in our storytelling and our dialogue. Uh, so when you want to say something, it was great. <laughs> it's like, well, that sounds very cliche. It was magical. Maybe that's not as cliche. But it was, uh, it was a very powerful demonstration of the kingdom of God in and through this idea of story and I was just richly blessed. And, you know, whatever my expectation was coming in, which was high, uh, it surpassed it, and it was just such a tremendous blessing. So I just want to thank um, those of you that were a part of that, uh, those of you that taught at that. It was, a, it was a real neat blessing. So this will be an interesting conclusion uh, to that. And there's some tension that comes up when you start addressing the issues of art, and the Christian. And we've sort of faced some of those uh, this weekend as we were walking through the issue of story because what we're doing is we're communicating, we're demonstrating, we're showcasing, we're projecting something. Every, every piece of art is showing a, a, an inner view of someone, a, a thought, an idea, and that's actually the idea of art itself. It's, it's thoughtful meditation. It's an invention. It is a, uh, it's a craft. And so something inside is coming outside. And so depending on what's on the inside defines really if what is being created is good or not. And so it creates this tension when we as Christians begin to create art because we have a tendency, especially in our generation now, to see a standard that has been set by those that actually hate God. And then we're inspired to say, they are doing that so well, I just hate their message. And so then we have a tendency to mimic their art form, but try and stick Christianity into it, which is a, it's a tension. And we all sort of sense that because some of the art forms are just, you know, it's, it's a secular thing in and of itself. I mean, to draw, you either draw well or you don't. And is there a Christian way to draw and, a, and an evil way to draw? And, you know, so how do we reason through this? So I'm, I'm going to bring that topic to the surface and sort of poke at it and make us all a little uncomfortable with it, which it's all, you know, that's, that's my role uh, as, a, as a preacher, you know, as I get to, you know, sort of say the uncomfortable things. But what I want to, is I want truth to lead us, because we live in a postmodern era. Now that, that term, eh, you know, what, whatever that would mean to you, uh, but here's how I would describe it. Art is higher than truth. And that's a very simplistic enunciation of postmodernism. But it's a culture in which Art is celebrated as higher than truth. So then we say, what do you define as art then, Eric? And so let's just go through this, and that'll sort of come out as we progress. 
But I'm wanting to propose that we as the kingdom of heaven always put truth higher than art. And that does not mean the diminishment of art. It just means the proper placement of truth. So creativity without the compromise. Sorry, my clicker is not on, which is a classic thing for me to do. So uh, if you come through Ellerslie, you're going to hear me give this illustration. It's a classic illustration. I didn't come up with it. It's, you know, historic Christianity has uh, tugged this illustration around for centuries. But it's an illustration of what's called fact, faith, and experience. So there's three characters, and they're all commissioned to do something impossible. And that's walk the ridgepole of a barn. I know, some of you are like, that's not that hard. But this is different than the Anne Shirley barn uh, in Anne of Green Gables. This is like a razor's edge. It's impossible. You just need to take my word for it. It's impossible to walk this ridgepole. So the first character gets up, and his name is Fact. And so he starts walking the ridgepole. And he doesn't seem to waver, doesn't seem to have any consternation on his face. <laughs> he just walks it. And we're like, wait a minute. I thought you said this was impossible, Eric. I know, I did. But truth, or fact in this case, we don't, we don't use the term fact in Christianity. It's a funny thing, but we use the term truth because it's not just a collection of data, it's a person. And it's Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ has come, and though it was impossible, he did it. And everything about the truth, everything about the word of God is an impossibility. Because if you look, if you ever study the word of God and how it was put together, it's impossible. It really is. The life of Jesus, it's impossible. And he fulfills all the Old Testament prophecies. It's impossible. Jesus comes and he does it. So we're going to call it fact because that helps reset a certain dimension of our understanding. When you call something fact, that means it has no lie. It has no exaggeration. It is what we would say truth. But fact, like two plus two equals four. It'll always equal four. It doesn't matter if you don't like it. It doesn't matter how you feel about it. it it's the way it is. And we in Christianity oftentimes feel our way now because we're being influenced by something. We're being influenced by this feeling-oriented culture which says, but I don't want two plus two to equal four. I don't feel that that should equal four. And so it's like, I have my own truth. And see, that's not how life works. You see, fact gets out and walks the ridgepole. And here's where we come in. We be faith in the story. And when faith fixes its gaze on fact it actually gains balance and is able to walk the ridgepole. I know the story is sort of a little sketchy that I say something's impossible and the first two characters are able to pull it off. You're like, Eric, I think you need to revisit your definition of impossible. And yet this is actually how Christianity works. That fact gets out there. Jesus Christ walks out the impossible life and he says, follow me, heed me, believe on me. When we fix our gaze on the word of God, the fact, the truth, then we actually gain balance and are able to pull off what the Bible would term an impossible life. And life would be easy and Christianity would be swell if that was all there was. But there's some noise back behind. It's the third character and his name is experience. And experience could have various names. He could be called emotion, feeling. He could be called, for the sake of our message today, art, artistic expression. And so as a result, when faith follows fact, it gains balance, but there's noise behind. And this experience, like great Aunt Martha, remember you prayed for her, she had cancer, and then she died. Uh, remember Uncle Frank, he, he called himself a Christian, but he was the most profane person on earth. You have these things back here that when you believe the truth, they squabble with it. They make noise. And so as a result, there's a choice that has to be made in the soul. Do you believe the fact 
Or are you going to turn around and consult experience as greater than the fact? God spoke, but what about Aunt Martha? What about Uncle Frank? And when you turn and consult that which is behind you, which is inferior to the fact, you will find that you lose balance and cannot stay on this ridgepole. And you end up, there's a little manure pile down at the bottom of the barn, and you end up there. And many of us have spent a good deal of our life in that manure pile down there, staring up at this lofty ideal called Christianity. But the reason something is off is because we are actually allowing something that is meant to be an inferior dimension of our life and our construction. It's not bad. There's nothing wrong with experience and, and emotion and feeling and art, as we will talk about today. It's that it's not supposed to be the lead defining instrument. So I'm going to give you a secret of how experience and emotion and all these things actually walk out the impossible life. And that is, faith must ignore them. Faith cannot be controlled by emotion and experience. It must be controlled by the truth, by the fact. And so when faith follows fact, and even though bombs are going off, I mean, fireworks display behind, I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on back here, that faith remains resolute and says, but I believe. And when it believes, what's going to happen is that experience is going to line up and gain balance. The emotions are going to follow suit and actually pull off the impossible. So what I'm doing is I'm setting up a premise of understanding for how we can think and reason. Because when I stick art back here, it's not the diminishment of art. I think art is a, an amazing thing that God invented. However, it can be sabotaged just like our emotions. Just like our experience can be sabotaged by an enemy, a villain, as we talked about uh, this weekend. There's a villain who desires to sabotage this progression of our soul. Because God intends your experience to actually match with your faith, which matches with the truth. That's what God intends. He intends your emotion to line up and actually match with what God says in his word. That's what he intends. But there is a saboteur at work. So if we were going to rephrase this for our message today, it could be truth, faith, and art. Truth gets up, walks the ridgepole, then you stand up and you say, yes, I want to follow you. But then we have this thing called art, which is an inferior dimension in God's creation. Art is not the premier element. It is a supporting cast member. And when we place it at the highest levels, we have a tendency, well, we don't just have a tendency, we lose balance and we lose truth. So there are always twos. Now, I said this on Friday morning in the time I talked with you, and if you're a student here, I don't know if we've counted up how many times I've said this. And the first one is always more impressive. In the Bible, there are twos. And every, if you start thinking this way, you see it everywhere. The Bible itself is divided into two parts, okay? And the first is very impressive. The Old Covenant, wow. And then the New Covenant is superior in his blood. And so you have the Bible, you know, Cain, Abel. And it's the second offering that God accepts, Ishmael, Isaac. It's the second son that actually is going to carry the blessing. It's Esau, Jacob, Saul, David. All throughout the Bible, this is the flow and the breakdown of how God is revealing the fact that there is a second. So in the New Testament, you're going to see law, grace, and you're going to see grace lifted higher. Uh, and you're going to see flesh, spirit, and you're going you're to hear the words, you must be born again. In other words, there's a first man and there's a second man. And as long as you remain in the first man, you die. But if you humble yourself, if you repent and believe in the second man, you enter into his working and you actually are able to participate in the second man. And the second man 
has triumphed and the second man is welcomed into the heavenly realms. And if you are in that second man, you have life and that life is eternal. But on paper, if you were to lay out these two illustrations, you're going to notice that the second always looks weaker. It's a strange phenomenon. To the natural eye, it looks weaker. Now, when we bring this into the Christian understanding and we bring it into art, this is a tension point for us. Because as artists, we desire to appease the world. We desire to have them look at what we do and say, that is brilliant. The way we would look at something they would do, we go, oh yeah, it's brilliant, but I mean, I hate the message. And yet, when we do what we do, it could be brilliant, it could be well done, but they have a tendency to not give us many compliments. And there's a tension here. Because the second uh, doesn't seem as impressive. So I'm going to give you just a, a few examples uh, in a little more detail. But Esau, Jacob. Esau is described in such a humorous way to me, but so is Jacob. The descriptions in this whole story, I mean, the whole story is sort of bizarre, right? But you have Esau who's hairy all over, okay? And his hair is red, too. So it's red hairy all over. And it's just quite the mental picture, but he's a hunter. And so you picture this guy, and he's like stout. He's muscular. He's hairy all, all over. Then the description of Jacob is not just awkward, but it's like about as abysmal of a description as you've ever heard. He's a plain man dwelling in tents. I mean, so I've, I've joked with the ladies uh, many times at Ellerslie and said, okay, so I'm going to give you a choice. You have the hairy hunter or you have the plain man dwelling in tents. Which one are you naturally attracted to? And one of the most hilarious comments I ever heard from uh, someone at Ellerslie was this. One of the girls goes, how hairy? <laughs> But on paper, we all know that we would esteem, if we wanted someone to be our protector, we wouldn't choose Jacob. A plain man dwelling in tents would picture him knitting with his mom. It's like, come on, buddy, be a man. But God is going to choose the second. And there's a purposeful illustration going on. Even the way God is going to describe it scripturally is setting us up for something. It looks weaker. Saul versus David. You know the description of Saul is very impressive. I'm not going to say that the David description isn't impressive. It's just you're not going to think that he's ready to lead a nation. You're not going to think that he could take down a, a giant. In other words, he's a handsome guy. At least he has that going for him. He has a ruddy complexion. However, Saul is head and shoulders above all Israel. He is a giant man. In other words, he is the giant of Israel. Isn't that an amazing thought? He's huge. So when you pick Goliath against two who should stand up, Saul should stand up. Saul's the giant. And so you look at what the nation of Israel says, we like Saul. We want Saul to lead us. God says, I want this man to lead you. He chooses a second. It's called the better man. He is the one after God's own heart. But he's a little eighth son of Jesse. You know, he's, he's not that impressive from the little diddly squat town of Bethlehem. You've got to be kidding. He wasn't even invited to the king anointing ceremony. His dad didn't even think him worthy of that. Isn't, it's just such a fascinating thought. Hebrew versus Koine Greek, one of the most fascinating thought processes to go through, especially you know, as a writer, you're thinking of even language, is there's a first and a second. And the Hebrew, if you've ever studied the Hebrew language, it is epic. It is smart. It is intelligent. Every character, like an aleph in the Hebrew, has depth of meaning. It's an alphanumeric uh, language. So e each of the letters, like it doesn't just, like to us, if I said, what does A mean? You go, it, it means A? I mean, what, what is it? It's just a, it's a letter. It's a, a symbol. And what does it say? A, ah, ah. 
It's like, well, well done. Well, the Hebrew, it has so much more dimension. It actually has numerical value, too. It means one. It has symbolic value, which is strength. So an aleph is going to show forth a strength. So when you add that with like a bait, which is the second uh, letter in the Hebrew alphabet, which means in, it's like a tent. So you have strength in the home, ab, that's father. And so when you start studying, it's like, that is, that is brilliant. That is incredible. And you get so fascinated. It's intellectual uh, candy for the mind. And God, <clears throat> when he is revealing his better covenant, chooses what the Jews would have considered a dog's language. It's this common, boring, I mean, you've got to be kidding. God would never speak in the Koine Greek, and yet the Holy Spirit is going to lead the writers of the New Testament who would have known Hebrew, at least most of them, if we were going to think, technically we don't know who the writer of Hebrews is, but you just sort of presume he would know Hebrew, right? <laughs> <laughs> to write in Koine Greek. That's a profound statement. He is choosing a second, which looks inferior, and yet God is going to reveal something superior through it. He's going to choose weakness as his delivery vessel. Okay, so I'm, I'm laying a premise out here. Flesh versus spirit. If any of you have ever watched the Olympics and you've seen what men can do in their own strength, it is extremely impressive. Unless you know how to dig and to study Christian biography, it's very difficult to see what the Spirit of God has done throughout history because the world does not market it, the world does not broadcast it, and so as a result, at first blush, the Spirit looks weak. And so what you're saying is you're going to give up all your strength, C.T. Studd. You guys know who C.T. Studd is? You're going to give up all your strength, C.T. Studd. He's the best cricket player in the world, arguably, at the time, which would have been the equivalent of like the LeBron James of basketball. Okay, so he is go he's the best, and he's one of the wealthiest men you've ever seen, Pride and Prejudice, the Pemberley Estate. Yeah, C.T. Studd's estate is bigger. So he has wealth, he has talent, he has fame and power. He comes to Christ, and he makes a choice. Hudson Taylor comes over to England and speaks. He just melts before the call to missions, and he literally gives up all of his money. He gives up his cricket plane, and he goes on the mission field to no man's land, China, interior China. No one knows that he gave up his, his wealth, so no one even is thinking to support wealthy C.T. Studd. This man gave up everything, and on paper, let's just be honest, guys, that looks like a very bad decision. As he gives up the strength and the prowess of his own natural man for that, you've got to be kidding. And yet... Here I stand all these years later and I say, I want what that man has. There is something even more powerful that has been communicated through his story and through the spirit side of his life than his physical flesh achievement. But God chooses the second, the apparently weaker one. In Genesis 25, talking to Rebecca, uh, God is answering the question of why am I thus, as she asks. Why is there this warring in my womb. Says, God says, two nations are in your womb. What a strange statement. There's two kids in there. Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other. And the older shall serve the younger. The second born is actually going to rule over the firstborn. That's actually what is being said here. This is a messianic prophecy. It's not just talking about Esau and Jacob. It's showing that the second is stronger and will ultimately rule. But the Lord said to Samuel, 
So this is a great moment. Remember the anointing ceremony and Eliab comes uh, in and uh, he just looks the part. And this is just showing you the symbol of the second so, so uh, powerfully. Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. This is a tension when we get into the artistic realms because it's really hard for us not to appropriate it the way Samuel does here. I mean, we're all on the same boat. I love well-done things. And so this is a tension. That's why I'm bringing it up. I'm just bringing up a tension on purpose. 1 Corinthians 15. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written. The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, the second man, became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first but the natural, and afterward the spiritual. It's given a first and second illustration. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. Isn't it interesting to call him the second man, 77 generations later? First, second, don't miss it. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Christianity, right there. You must be born again. Well, that about says it. If you remain a first, you're lost. But if you will humble yourself and you will join up with the second man who looks weaker, when he hung naked on a tree, did not open his mouth to defend himself. You want to hop into that? You want to join up with that guy? Yes, I do. But you do know what that's going to look like, don't you? You can try and be as cool as you want to be. But when you get inside of Jesus, you're going to have to give up your coolness. That's a message that is really hard to grapple with when we start getting into the arts. This is a challenging one. There are two forms of artistic expression. A flesh version of art and a spirit version of art. So we'll go back to Exodus to show you a spirit version. And I know many of you that are artists have, have looked at this. And it's extremely fascinating for us to recognize that God, God is into the arts. He really is. And Moses said to the children of Israel, See, the Lord is called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. This is a guy from the tribe of Judah, which is a fascinating statement. And he has filled him with the Spirit of God, in wisdom and understanding, in knowledge and in all manner of workmanship, to design artistic works, to work in gold and silver and bronze, and cutting jewels for setting and carving wood, and to work in all manner of artistic workmanship. And he has put in his heart the ability to teach in him and Aholiab, the son of Ahizamach, of the tribe of Dan. He has filled them with, this, with skill to do all manner of work of the engraver and the designer and the tapestry maker in blue, purple, and scarlet thread and fine linen, and of the weaver, those who do every work and those who design artistic works, and Bezalel and Aholiab and every gifted artisan in whom the Lord has put wisdom and understanding to know how to do all manner of work for the service of the sanctuary shall do according to all that the Lord has commanded. So the word for artistic works here is makashaba, which means a contrivance, a cunning work, an artificial work, an invention, a purpose, a plot, a scheme, a meditation. There's some uncomfortable words in there. The way this word is used in the Hebrew can go decidedly one of two ways. And that's what's interesting about it, just like what we're talking about right now. This idea, this makashava, can go one of two ways depending on how it is used. Because we are built as humans for makashava. However, how it is wielded is defined 
by something internal in the man. So it's a contrivance, a cunning work, an artificial work. I, I was studying, I looked at the 1828 dictionary on artificial because I was fascinated by that, just thinking about art and then the word artificial because our knee-jerk reaction to the word artificial is fake. When in actuality, it means a work of art in its original sense, but it can mean fake. Okay, so it means both and, which I thought was fascinating. In other words, what we see is that... Uh, these, these two men are filled with the Holy Spirit to do artificial works, but they are works that represent another realm. The real thing is in that realm. They are going to reveal a shadow in this realm through their artificial work. It is not fake in the negative sense, but it is not the truest thing. It is merely a shadow of something in another realm. It is an artificial work. It's art. It was just an amazing thought when I was looking at that. Sometimes you have to go back to the 1828 dictionary just to sort of wrap your mind around some of these words. But when we, we see a word like a plot, oh, that's terrible, it's a plot. Well, what, what have we been talking about this whole weekend? <laughs> Coming up with a good plot. Well, we, I wouldn't come up with a plot. I, I don't plot. Yes, you do. We plot, but you can plot in two different ways. There's a first man version of plotting, and there's a second man version of plotting. You can plot for self-gain, you can plot for Christ gain. Whoa, there's two very different ways that you could plot. How about this, a scheme? Oh, oh, scheme, I would never scheme. We scheme. To be wise as serpents, innocent as doves, that's what a serpent does, he schemes. We scheme, but not as the world does. We do not scheme for our own gain, for the nullification of Christ's truth. We don't scheme for that. We scheme to see Christ's truth, break into this world and change it. So, yeah, we do this. So this word is used to describe the evil thoughts of humanity in Noah's day. It's the plots of nations to stand against God and the schemes of Haman to obliterate the Jews. It's used for plenty more than that. But I'm just giving you a quick sampling. In other words, this is a bad word. If you were to just have those illustrations, like, oh, we don't want to do that. No artificial working on our part. We're not going to build a gallows to hang Mordecai on it. Oh, no. We're not going to scheme to take down the enthroned one in heaven. Oh, we will never do that. So we can throw out art just with that. However, when you recognize that God came up with this, this is what, now listen to this. I'll just let this speak for itself. And this word is used to describe the spirit-enabled work of Bezalel and Aholiab in the tabernacle of Jehovah. Okay, brace yourselves. And the plans and inventions of God himself. God does this. So we have to assume that there's a good version of it too. That God, even when he created us, is inventing something that reveals something unseen. We are, I don't want to call us an artificial work, that just sounds terrible, but we are a shadow work of the, we're the image of the invisible. And so in that sense, God is in the business of this. I love this statement in light of that statement. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He is a carpenter, too, of all things. Now, that could have meant, you know, some guy that worked with stone to build uh, stone houses back then. You know, I've, I've heard various things. And then, of course, in the Passion of the Christ, he's working with wood. They're all, I don't know that we actually know what that is, but the fact that he's called a carpenter is very fascinating, that we are his workmanship, and that Bezalel was of the tribe of Judah, uh, filled with the Holy Spirit to, what, furnish the temple? What is Jesus doing? What is this entire work 
tear down this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days and furnish it. The point on which the two forms of art diverge. So if we're going to really press on that, it's the word of God. Where are the word of God? This is why I started with fact, faith, and experience. Because how you treat the word of God is going to define if you're functioning in a firstborn form of art or a secondborn form of art. So a deviant artistry sounds terrible, I know. It is. A look into the perversion of the notion of artistic. The crafty voice. It's really fascinating that even the word to describe it is crafty. Because when, you, when we hear the word crafty, it's like, oh. But then what do we do? We do arts and crafts. It's like, whoa. Uh, calling into question the obvious truth, beckoning a more generous understanding of the clear command. Did God really say that? So what we have is we have our serpents in the garden and he is plying a question to the word of God. This is actually the break point right here. Now the serpent was more subtle, which the term would be defined as cunning, shrewd, and crafty. Then any beast of the field which the Lord God had made and he said unto the woman, yea, hath God said. The age old question posed in a million different satanic ways. Is that really what God said? Is that really what God meant? Are you sure you aren't bringing your Greco-Roman platonic thinking into your understanding of that text? Are you sure this was even written by God? Wasn't this verse added years later? Hasn't there been a long dispute over that particular book's inclusion in the canon? Didn't some of the most reliable manuscripts not include that verse? But does that verse really match with Jesus' message of love and kindness? Would a loving God actually say that? Can truth really even be known? Do you really believe that God would limit himself to be defined by the parameters of such a small and decidedly human work of literature? Hath God said? Has God indeed said? Did God really say? Did God actually say? Indeed has God said? Did God say? Is it true that God has said? He said it. How you land on that? Are you going to go with the serpent? Because the serpent has all sorts of cunning works that he is desiring to employ. And yet God knows that the secret to changing the world, the secret way that you have been designed is to be enabled by his Holy Spirit to furnish the temple, to build things that truly bring glory to his name and showcase his gospel to the nations. Lucifer, it's interesting because his name means bringer of light, which is a good thing. That's like knowledge and understanding. That's what light is. But this light is a false light that has a singular intention in its illumination, and that is to question the words of God. Did God really say? It's an illumination of an insidious nature. So in Ezekiel 28, we hear about uh, this insidious nature. You were the anointed cherub who covers. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. So it's like, if we could say it this way, you can... You corrupted your artistic design and what you were called to do and bring forth for the sake of yourself. When you do something for the sake of yourself, you are corrupting the very essence of what you were built for. And so what you see is the chieftain of that, the one who's the prince over all of that realm. He, this is exactly how he started. He's the invention of that first form of corruption of self-centeredness. Now the serpent was more subtle, cunning, shrewd, and crafty than any beast of the field. Dalos is this word. He had more dalos than any other beast of the field, which means craft, subtlety, guile, to lure and to catch with bait. The chief priests and scribes sought how they might take him by 
dolos and put him to death. So we know that the serpent has this dolos, and we also know that the chief priests and scribes had dolos. They're cunning. They're trying to catch and trap the word of God. And so what we see is something that is obviously dangerous. Now, what's funny is if we were going to talk about a good story, what are we going to do? We're going to bait our audience. I mean, that's a great story. We all know it too. And guess what? God's a great storyteller. I mean, some of the greatest stories are told by God, right? And he, what does he do? Oh no, your Messiah's dead. He can't die. That's impossible. I mean, the cliffhanger, right? For three days, like, well, what's going to happen next? You see, this is not necessarily just an evil quality. It's when it is inhabited and utilized by self that it actually will destroy the world and it comes against the word of God as its chief argument. The sinister makeup of dolos, an ounce of guile, a dollop of subtlety, a pinch of craftiness. Guile, it's defined as craft, cunning, artifice. See the word art sort of strangely woven into that word? Duplicity, deceit, hypocrisy. Jesus hates this stuff. So as a result, you see the distinction between one and two is so extreme. When Jesus came to this earth, it's arguable that you could say, if I said, what made him upset more than anything else? It was the Pharisees and this. This is what he detests. So you can see that we ride a razor's edge on this issue. When you start dealing with craft and art, you're handling something that is like a live grenade. It has power to destroy, and yet, strangely, it has power to bring incredible life. Guileful, cunning, crafty, artful. Wow, isn't it interesting? Artful, like the artful dodger. Uh, what is that, uh, Oliver Twist? The artful dodger, that's not a compliment. Uh, the guy is sly and cunning, and he's up to no good, right? He's artful. Subtlety, sly in design, artful. <laughs> Cunning, so delicate or precise as to be difficult to analyze or describe. Making use of clever and indirect methods to achieve something. Its origin in the Middle English means not easily understood. The devil specializes in subtlety. And yet, we all know that subtlety can be leveraged in a way that actually brings life. So we're, we're dealing with something very delicate here. Craft, cunning, art, or skill in a bad sense, or applied to bad purposes, artifice, guile, skill or dexterity, employed to affect purposes by deceit, to play tricks. Crafty, craftiness, cunning, artful, skillful in devising and pursuing a scheme by deceiving others or by taking advantage of their ignorance. Wily, sly, fraudulent, clever at achieving one's aims by indirect or deceitful methods. <laughs> okay, so here we are, we're learning how to deal with story. If you, if you were here this weekend, right? And yet, even if you weren't here this weekend, you're fascinated going, should I deal with story or should I not deal with story? Should I be an artist or should I not be an artist? Craftily, with craft, cunning or guile, artfully, cunningly, with more art than honesty. So remember how I started? I said, what's happened with our generation, even in Christianity, is we have allowed art to actually have the preeminence over truth. So as a result, we will worship the artistic expression more than we do the truth. And as a result, we are dealing in the devil's business the moment we begin to do that. 
The postmodern Christian, Christianity with more art than honesty, more guile than truth. But we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God with dolo. Okay, so I just, you know, we've already gone through craftiness, right? And dolo, that is this subtlety, the guile. Uh, and so we have renounced the hidden things of shame. We do not function in our art the way that we would in our first state. This is not for self. So we're not walking in craftiness, nor are ha- we handling the word with dolo. Remember that dolos? but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. So speaking of Jesus, who did no sin, neither was dolos found in his mouth. He wasn't found with guile. There was no falseness in him. He was not trying to play tricks on people. He spoke what was true. What happens when we listen to this crafty serpent? When the word of God in textual form is diminished, it leads to a diminishment of the word of God in person. Jesus Christ. So you follow this. Now, I did a message quite a few years ago called The Evil Side of Artistic. And that would be something that I would encourage you to maybe look up. And it goes through the postmodern work in the church of how the thought process, processes continue when you begin to question the Word of God. And so you start by questioning the integrity of the Word of God. Are we sure that this is really God's Word? Are we sure it's not just the words of good men and God puts his endorsement on the back of the book says, pretty good book, God. And yet, once you diminish the word of God in text, you remove its godness. Because the word of God is God's word. And when you remove it from being God's words to be human words that are just good, that are noble and godly or godlike, then what you immediately do is you remove the godness, even unwittingly, of Jesus Christ. You see, as the godness of the Bible is diminished, the godness of Jesus is diminished. And that's, you'll, you'll even see it in their arguments. They reason this way too. And so as a result, when Jesus loses his, what we would call divinity, then what happens to the cross? The cross becomes a work of a man instead of the work of God on our behalf. And once the cross becomes the work of a man, you have emptied the gospel of its power to save. Now it is merely a show of love and noble action. It is no longer the atoning work of grace. It is no longer the redemption of all mankind. It is something altogether different. And so as a result, the reason we preserve the word of God in text isn't because it is the end. The word of God in text is like a treasure map. It leads you to a treasure. But if you lose the treasure map, you lose the treasure. So as a result, we must stand and defend the word of God in text. Wycliffe, Tyndale, we must be willing to do whatever it takes to preserve the soundness of these words. Why? Because it leads us to the soundness of Jesus Christ, which leads us to the soundness of his work on the cross. If you lose that, you lose the whole kit and caboodle. Eric the artist. Can't you just see it? I like the sound of it. Even seeing it on the screen, it's like, yeah, that sounds good. Being likable and attractive to the culture is the Christian's highest aim. This is a really interesting thing for the guy standing in front of you. Okay, because I, I have an artistic sense, an artistic flair, right? Just like probably many of you in here do. And there are certain things where you measure yourself. You look out there and you see what's popular. You see what's working. And so I want to give off whatever that is. It's the vibe, okay? It's the way you comb your hair. It's the way you wear your hat. It's the way you button your shirt. It's the kind of shirt you have on. Everything about it is how you walk. Everything about it is part of the artistry of living out humanity. 
and I want to be attractive to this culture. It's a natural disposition, but I'm going to put it over here in the firstborn side of things. That when I come to Christ, Christ puts his finger on that and says, Eric, what's that strut you're doing there? Yeah, you know, it, uh, it looks really cool the way you're wearing your hat there, Eric, but would you be willing uh, to turn it this way? Like, No, I can't do that. Because the moment you, you do it that way, you don't look cool. This is an interesting tension that we all deal with at a certain level. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Now, it's very likely that that is specifically referring to the cross. It may not refer to the body of Christ in all of his growing up years. But when he was on that cross, he was disfigured beyond recognition, beyond human, normal human form. But this is still our Christ who was willing in his greatest work that he has ever done, the greatest work that has ever been performed on this earth did not come across well to the culture around it. So I'm going to say that no matter what work you do, defining on how and what source you are working from is very, very important. Because I esteem this work as the most beautiful work in all of history. I do. But why do I esteem it that way? Because I'm second born. I am twice born. And as a result, I have eyes to see the beauty of what is taking place right there, even though everyone around that scene is not seeing the beauty and the majesty that I see. One of the challenges that we face as Christians, Jesus did a great work. It is a magnificent work that it cannot be matched by any other human. And yet not everyone appreciated its majesty. Are we willing to do works that aren't appreciated by the onlooking crowd, but are applauded in heaven? Eric, the communicator, avoid certainty or preachiness at all costs. We all understand the rules. We get it. So you, I used to teach advanced levels of communication for professional speakers. You know how challenging it is to know what I know about communications and then to deal with the life of Jesus. Oh, Jesus, I know that you did that, but I'm going to assume that that was like before the cross and as a result, I, I'm going to improve upon what you did because you're going to scare off audiences. John 6 is a very uncomfortable thing for any public communicator. And they all left him. It was like, what? Just don't say that. Don't say that your body is meat. Just don't say that. Okay, Jesus, as your PR department, I'm going to say, don't say that. And so as a result, there's this tension because the truth, we have been entrusted with it, but I know instinctively because I have a sense. You know, some people have a sense of humor. Some people have a sense of style. I have a sense of audience. I know that when I say certain things that it could bring offense. So what's my tendency? To not say it then. God sometimes allows us to have a very clear sense that when we speak something, it will be socially incorrect. And yet, because we love, we are willing to speak something that may not come across well. For Christ sent me, says Paul, to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross, be should be, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect not with the wisdom of words. You ever struggled with that one? It's like, uh, what does that mean? The preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block and foolishness. This word idiotes, I don't know how many of you have ever studied the word idiotes, but you, you get a feeling just when you see the word that it's not good. 
And it means exactly what you would guess. Seemingly unlearned, appearing unskilled. Boy, that's a tough one, guys. Appearing unskilled and lacking intelligence. I don't want that, naturally speaking. As a Christian, I say, Lord, I want to be skilled. I want to be learned. But I'm willing to look unskilled and unlearned if it means your glory. Oh, that's a hard one. Paul, but though I be idiotes in speech. Oh, so I'm a speech communicator and teaching that. It's like, so we want to be like Paul. Uh, what do I do with that? <laughs> Eric, the one refusing to be foolish. I really struggled with this, guys. This has been a huge Everest in my life. Because when I sense what an audience needs, the reason I've been an effective communicator is I know audiences. I know how to work with an audience. It's really difficult when you're dealing with truth. Because when you're dealing with truth, it brings in an element that is different than just intellectual. I remember it being described this way to me because I didn't grow up around preaching. I grew up around teaching. Good biblical teaching. Preaching just sounds terrible. I mean, what's that? But it's by the foolishness of preaching. Why would God choose whatever that is? Because you know, I think of this maniac on a street corner. Ah, nah, nah, and I'm like, okay, not that. <laughs> then I think of John the Baptist. And I'm like, okay, not that. Uh, you know, what is it, like a leathern girdle? I picture his hair like, <laughs> And then he's like popping locust and wild honey. It's just like, okay, this guy, he, he, I think he has an odor to him that isn't, you know, you have to stand at least 10 feet away from him because he's living out in the wilderness. I, ba I bet he hasn't had a shower in a long time, right? You get this idea of what he's like, and yet he's the harbinger. He's the forerunner for the Christ. What are we? We're the forerunner, the one, the one who follows us. We're unworthy to untie his shoe latchet. But we have the privilege of being in a, a position to forerun, to be a friend of the bridegroom because the one that follows us is superior. But what was John, what did he look like? He didn't look the part. So I really struggle with this. And here's the description of preaching. It really helped me. If you put, uh, it, we called it icy hot. I don't know what it is, some kind of mentholatum uh, thing when I was young. You're in sports, you'd always have icy hot on you. You, s you could smell it a mile away, too. I actually like the smell. And uh, so if you stick it on a, a pulled muscle, a sore, sore muscle, it helps. But it's more of a surface help. So the secret to icy hot is to stick a hot, damp towel on it. And what it does is it drives that in deep into the muscle. And I remember someone saying, that's preaching. Teaching is going to get the surface, but someone who's intellectually against the word of God, if you just teach, they're going to just disagree with it intellectually. But when you preach, you bypass the intellect and touch them in the spirit. And it's foolishness. And even the guy doing it would be like, God, I can't believe I'm doing this. And yet it's actually through this foolishness that God has sought to awaken multitudes throughout the ages. Isn't that just an interesting thing? So I'm not saying I'm calling you guys to be preachers or to be preachy, because we know what that means. To speak down, oftentimes, would be the term. Or to speak too authoritatively in a position where you should appeal. Okay? In other words, preachiness is not necessarily what I would encourage. However, the willingness to speak boldly, the willingness to speak on the authority of the word of God and not back down, oh, this is a tension. The motto from Eric Ludi, somehow make this awkward thing known as Christianity cool. That was actually, if you were to, I wouldn't have said that out loud. 
But I used to spend a lot of time in my brainstorm and my creative time trying to think how I could make Christianity cool. I was really struggling too, because no matter what I do, and if you ever, we all know, we talked about it this weekend if you were here, when someone brings a conversion scene to the screen, it's just, it's so easy to fall flat. It's just like, that just doesn't translate. I don't know what it is, but it doesn't translate well through film. And I don't know if you've ever shared the gospel with someone, but you, do not, you never feel strong when you share the gospel. It is a weird, Jacob-like limp. I, I've been in so many situations where I know God wants me to say something, and I'm, I'm a communicator, guys. It's what I do. But the moment I go into gospel mode, there's like a, I feel a weakness and it, it feels socially uncouth. Like I'm violating something. Yesterday I, was, I came up to a lady, she was in an accident, and it's like, are you all right? And she was going off on how this person drove across here and I'm like, oh, that's so, so terrible. And, and, and I go, uh, is everyone all right? And she goes, my mom, I think, is a little hurt. And, and I go, can I, can I pray for your mom? And uh, she goes, no. Uh, and it was so weird. <laughs> from, from that point forward, it was awkward. And uh, we entered into the zone, you know, where I'm like, well, you know, it, I, just, just no, I, I would love to help in any way I can. If I could pray for her, I, I, I'm a pastor. I figured that sometimes works. You're like, oh, if you're a pastor, then you can do it. And yet, whenever I go into that zone, I feel a pause within me. Don't press beyond this. Eric, social line. Oh, don't go past that. <laughs> and so this exists. This exists in all our artistry, too. There's a certain point where we know that we violate, you know, like that, what is it, breaking the fourth wall? Is that what it's called? <laughs> We're breaking the fourth wall. There's an unspoken rule in art, in our world. You do not break that. And a Christian has to come to that point and make decision. What am I doing this for? Why am I doing it? Ah, we are fools for Christ's sake. Eh, about says it. Christ crucified, a stumbling block foolishness. The gospel, the foolishness of God. The things of the spirit of God, they are foolishness to natural man. Preaching, foolishness. The preacher, weak, contemptible, unskilled, a.k.a. foolish. Okay, I, my natural man isn't attracted to this any more than yours is. I'm just laying out some facts, some data. Paul, his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. The exaltation of artistic above Jesus. The postmodern message. When you begin to exalt the artistic expression, see when the, it was called the emergent movement, they, they've moved away from the, the term now, but the emergent movement would celebrate like a prayer labyrinth or, you know, the lotus position when you pray they they start it was like in coffee shops they'd create their churches into little coffee shops take out all the pews and everyone would sit in sort of a lotus position while you preach they were creating what we could call artistic havens or artistic atmospheres and because we see god more clearly in and through art and guess what all of us in here could go i get that i get that when i see a movie as opposed to having someone tell me the movie like tell me the story and you see it, which one's more impactive? Well, I'd say the artistic expression of it as opposed to this guy who just rattled off about what the plot line was. It's like, yeah, the, the artistic expression is so much more powerful. So it's no argument on my part. I am inclined towards artistic environment. For instance, I have a tough time. This has been an ongoing thing. Leslie can't figure out why I can't work in this environment, why I can't work here. I'm like, I 
just can't focus in that environment. So guess where I end up focusing best, which is very embarrassing? Starbucks. <laughs> I don't like that. I'm not a fan of Starbucks corporate, but I, I can focus in Starbucks. Where is, I used to have an office here, never used it. I used to have a big desk, huge desk, very nice desk, wasn't it, Sandy? It was a very nice desk. I don't even know that I used it once, and I can't work at home very easily. It's like, I just can't. And so, but I can work at Starbucks. And what is that? That's the artistic haven. It's like, yes, I have my drink. And I don't like working at Starbucks without a drink. <laughs> and have you ever, like when I have a sore throat or something and I can't get my chai, because I always get a venti iced chai. Even when I'm walking, they'll make it for me. They'll be sitting there waiting for me when they see me pull up. And, uh, <laughs> but I can't get my venti iced chai, so I have to get something called like the medicine ball. It probably still has sugar in it, but I don't, I don't think that. And uh, so I, and, but I'm not as excited. Having my medicine ball drink there next to my computer is like, I sort of snarl at it, even as I'm doing it. I can't create as long as I have the medicine ball. Okay, so I am, I am very susceptible to all of this artistic thing. Because when I read Christian history, you know what I see? I see men and women who are stripped from their homes, stripped from their families, they're thrown into prison cells, dank, dark, smelly. And yet, one of the greatest works of literature of all time is written in such a location. And if I am dependent, and if I put art at such a high level in my life that I cannot be agreeable to God, I cannot be obedient to God, I cannot express the glory of God unless I have my venti chai and my spot by the window in Starbucks with my computer card, my computer plugged in and 100%, I'm ready to go. I'm missing something. I'm distorting something. The postmodern message, this is quoted from a first emergent 2-2. That's made up, by the way. <laughs> I come to you certain of absolutely nothing, but I do have a hug to offer, a lotus position to stick you in, some poetry from Gerard Manley Hopkins to recite, and some soft new age music playing in the background. <laughs> the Apostle Paul's message. For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. He was willing to look the fool. He was willing to be limited. He was willing to, I mean, this is a terrible church community here. Corinthians, you know, I always joke that, you know, people say, we want to be like the early church. Well, just make sure when you're praying, God, make us like the early church that you include a little addendum. This is not like Corinth. <laughs> Corinth was a disaster area. Paul is bringing a correction to it. And he's saying, look, guys, I came to you and I was willing to be the fool. I was willing to look like I didn't know anything else, but I was going to give you this. He was willing to look unskilled. He was willing to look unintelligent so that he could give them life. The center of it all, Jesus and what Jesus did. Three elements of godly artistry. So all of that, I'm going to say that I don't land over in this camp that says we need to avoid artistry that we need to stay away from artistic works because they're of the devil. I'm actually a very strong supporter of the fact that God desires to use the artistic, but via the Holy Spirit, via the humble vessel, via the vessel that believes that Jesus and him crucified is preeminent in the artistic expression. It's not just random artistry. It is purposeful artistry to furnish the truth of God in this world. So, three elements of godly artistry. Element one, beauty. 
God is the author of beauty. God never makes junk, and neither should the Christian. God does everything with excellence, order, and beauty, and so ought his children. But our God is not averse to making things the world deems foolish. So it's an interesting tension there. In other words, God does everything he does with skillful artistry. When he created the world, it was masterful. It was good. It was very good when he had his chief uh, finish with man. It was good. It was very good. What a statement from God himself. In other words, when he works, he works well. He finishes his tasks on time. If we were to look at God's work ethic, it's profound. And if we were to recognize that everything he does is with excellence. So what is the pattern that he has set? To do everything we do, whatever skill it is, with excellence. And with the purpose of showcasing his beauty. So it is not the lack of beauty, because that's what many of us struggle with as artists. It's like Christians, what they produce isn't that impressive. And so we have a tendency to look at what the world does and say, let's be like that. Let's just try and stick Christ into it. Throughout history, it has been the Christians oftentimes that have led the artistic expressions. They have been the chief amongst the musicians, the chief amongst the inventors. And just because we live in a day and age in which it seems like Hollywood has the upper hand and the scientists are all evolutionists, God defiers, does not mean that we as Christians shouldn't rise up and take claim to the truth. Faith follows fact. And let these things follow that. Let the art that we communicate, let the inventions that we make, let the stories that we tell flow out of our love and our worship of truth, of Jesus and him crucified. Element two, glory. Everything that is truly lovely is lovely because it reveals the glory of God. That's what loveliness is. It's a fascinating thing if you were to say, you have darkness and you have light. What's the difference? A lot of us think that darkness is a thing. Like you can measure it, put it on a scale and it weighs it. Actually, darkness is merely the absence of something and that is light. You have death and you have life. What's the difference? Well, it's funny because death is actually not a thing. It is the absence of something, is the absence of life. And so when we are looking at what is taken from us at the Garden of Eden, when we lose the spirit of God, now suddenly man is unable. Man is dead. He is without life. Man is living in darkness because the light has been extinguished. And so as a result, a Christian is one who is been ignited. The light is turned on in his soul. He is filled with life and life abundant and full of glory. He is given the power of God, the almighty enabling grace of God to now do what he does. And he is supposed to work, but not in the work of man. It's not self-effort. It is now God effort. What could possibly come out of that? Something so superior to Hollywood. So when we measure ourselves against Hollywood, just on paper, I recognize we look weak. But when we look at it truly in the kingdom analysis, we would say, the Christian, truly indwelt by the living God, empowered by God, with the truth of God's kingdom at the helm. Watch out, world. Everything that is truly lovely is lovely because it reveals the glory of God. The Christian expresses their artistry for the glory of King Jesus alone and not ever for the carnal expression and glorification of self. Element three, purity. Purity of motive and purity of expression is a hallmark of everything born of the Spirit of God. God never bears the manner, scent, or pattern of the world, but is holy, holy, holy. You guys know what holy means. One of my favorite definitions for holy is otherly. It's a very interesting 
phrase for it, but as far as an adverbial phrase, otherly. He is otherly. He's other than us. He's other than the world. He's other than the way we've seen it done. He's holy, holy, holy. I'm not like that, guys. I'm not like that. I'm not like that. But that does not mean that he isn't one who creates artistic expression. It's just that he does it of a different nature, of a different ends of a different purpose his thinking is different the mind of man the mind of of the demonic the mind of christ and when we reason when we work out of this platform of the second position out of the holy spirit we create something different than this world and maybe this world will not understand it when the holy spirit filled and i could say conceived jesus in the womb of mary he grows up into a full maturity and he goes and does the most amazing work that has ever been done on earth the world did not see it and applaud and yet two thousand years later i stand stunned in the museum of great works throughout all of history that's preeminent above all what he did and so it's possible that in your lifetime what you do for the king may not be applauded, but in, in and throughout all eternity, may it rank up amongst the great works of those that gave up their life to reveal the glory of God. God never bears the sense, the manner, scent, or pattern of the world, but is holy, holy, holy. The Christian is without guile, subtlety, craft, and deceit in their artistry. They wield the power of artistry only for the clarification of God's rock-like truth and never to make it fuzzy or indiscernible. Our goal is to not bring confusion. Our goal is to bring clarity. That does not mean we can't plant an Easter egg in the field. I think that was one of the ways that we talked about it this weekend, which I love. It's sort of like, hey guys, Easter eggs in a field, go find them. That's exactly what we do. God does that to us all the time. He sets out his words as there's all sorts of Easter eggs in there. You're gonna have to search them out. It's not the lack of adventure. It's the lack of confusion. God is not blurry. He's clear. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. Humble yourself before him. Anyone who does not believe in him will be condemned. There is only one means of salvation. God's pretty clear. We don't want to be that clear in this generation. We want to be a little more blurry because blurriness gives us acceptance. But when we start to get a sharpness at any level, it gets a little dicey. We must brave the foolish path. Remember, God always chooses the second. So if God's selecting something, well, we have our, our version over here, self-made, using talents out of our own ability, very talented, by the way, to someone who humbles himself, submits their life to Jesus Christ, lets him indwell them and says, God, what you desire to do with this life, you do. God always chooses the second. And remember, the word cool is just another word for lukewarm. <laughs> I figured you guys would all like that. Of course, you have to have a depth of revelation knowledge to understand that one. <laughs> so guys, I'm going to finish with this. First Peter, beloved artists. Okay, so I, I threw you in, just so you wouldn't miss it. Beloved artists, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he is glorified. Father, 
I just ask that you would put the finishing touches for those that were here this weekend for this training, that nothing would be lost, that we would not lose the clarity of how to utilize the tools that we've been given, but that we would learn to use these tools well for the glory of God, and that we would learn how to walk this out in such a way which is not flesh, but is spirit, which is not Saul, but is David which is not old covenant self-effort, but which is new covenant God-effort. Lord, show us how to live this out in whatever dimension it is, whether it's our parenting, whether it's our marriages, whether it's our screenwriting. Lord, show us your way. It's in the precious name of Jesus Christ that we ask this. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder is delivered live and streamed daily weekdays at 8.15 a.m. and weekends at 9.15 a.m. Join us at live.ellerslie.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellersley.com. Thanks for listening. Thank <laughs> you.